Let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you again for this hour that you've granted us to come and hear about those things that really matter, the things of eternity, of salvation, of the justification of God's people on account of Christ and Christ alone. We pray, Lord, that you bless us with the hearing ears by your Spirit. We honor you, glorify you for all those that you've gathered to hear this message. May you grant them all they need to hear. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning, everyone who has joined us online. We are in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 to 27. Romans three nineteen to 27, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance God because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. Truthfully, you could have four or five messages just from those verses. Because almost every line is a message on, of its own. But we'll do this the Berean way, the long way. <laughs> righteousness apart from the law. That's going to be our title, Righteousness Apart from the Law. And Happy Mother's Day to all those that I had not already said Happy Mother's Day to. But we are back to doing the Lord's business. Righteousness apart from the law. Apostle Paul, under Holy Spirit inspiration, has labored hard and long to give a diagnosis of the spiritual condition of all men in Adam. And it is amazing stuff for me to hear from someone who had said, writing to the Roman Christians, I've been longing to come to you. I've been praying for you. But before I stop by, 
I just wanted to let you know about some things like, okay, I'm going to be coming to your house, but I'm going to give you 16 chapters of the things that we may be talking about when we get together. <laughs> That's essentially what Paul is doing. I just wanted to write you this matter of the gospel so that we are on the same page. Yes, you are believers, but the gospel cannot be taken for granted. It cannot be assumed because assumed gospel knowledge is one of the biggest problems in the church world. People assume that they have always known the gospel, always known Christ. And growing up, hearing some things about Jesus does not mean that one had the true gospel or they actually believe the true gospel. So do not assume that people know what the gospel is just because they go to church or they say Jesus or grace here and there. It is always safe to assume that they do not know the gospel. And yet, give them some benefit of the doubt. Because Paul is doing the same thing here. He has already addressed them as those who know the truth. But he is treating them as though they did not know the truth. So Paul assumes the Romans know the gospel. But he did not rest on his assumptions. He laid it out for them so that they would understand exactly what the issues were, just in case there were some who were in doubt or confused. Okay, So this is how Paul has opened his epistle in Romans 1. Let's go to Romans 1, verse 1 to 7. In Romans 1, verse 1 to 7, Paul has said, Paul, a born servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message with grace and peace to you who are beloved of God from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's message. So his gospel, he called it the gospel of God. And this gospel has particular content to it. And the content forms and holds the pillars of foundation of this message. It is not just a message from God. And surely is not a new message, but is the good news 
that God promised before through his holy prophets in the holy scriptures. And that is say, when we open the Old Testament scriptures, which are in view here, we are supposed to find this message. Or else we have not read or understood them correctly. We have to find this message because Paul says this message God promised through the Holy Scriptures and the Holy Prophets. So this Holy Scriptures testified of the good news about the person called Christ Jesus who is from the line of David from the tribe of Judah according to the flesh according to his humanity and yet also the Son of God as declared by the Spirit of Holiness through the resurrection. So that tells you the nature of Christ, that he is the God-man. He is God and man in one through the incarnation of the Logos according to John chapter 1, verse 1 to 14. And through this Christ, who has an identity, a different kind of obedience has been brought forth. An obedience that the Jews who were under the law had never heard of. An obedience has been brought forth by this Jesus. It is unlike the obedience to the law. It is the obedience of faith that even reaches the Gentiles like you and I, Gentiles who traditionally were not under the law of Moses. So this God, this Jesus, is reached through the obedience of believing, not by way of doing. That contrast is what Paul is going to be developing for us in this chapter. And that is a very important theological nugget that Paul will develop for us. But the obedience of faith is not for all people, without exception. It is Paul writing to the Roman Christians, he said, to all those who are in Rome. But he didn't stop there. He said, beloved of God. I'm sure God did not love Nero. <laughs> it is for those who are the beloved of God, called saints, separated ones, holy ones. That's what saint means. It means you are holy, you are separated unto Christ by God. And to all these, God brings the message of grace and peace. So that is the essence of this message. Grace and peace to the saints who have been called of God and beloved of God. But why grace and peace to them? Because... They are the young and the restless. <laughs> They've been watching too much soaps. Why grace and peace? 
because they are Romans 1 citizens who are under sin. You and I, God found us in Romans 1 country. And sin brings about separation with God. Sin brings God's displeasure. Sin brings God's wrath. Sin brings condemnation and death. And that's hell. But the citizens of Romans 1 country are not the only ones who are under this hopeless situation or condition. Even the seemingly best among them. Yeah? The moralists are sinners just like the rest. And they are hopeless just like the rest. And it doesn't end there. The bad news continues and Paul says even the Jew is no better. They have not been made better by the law. The law has not helped them to deal with their sin issue. They are also guilty sinners who are under God's wrath for their law-breaking and whatever advantages that they seem to have had were only temporary, more as librarians of God's oracles and nothing more. So whatever they knew under the law would not give them a leg up in salvation. So Paul's conclusion was both Jew and Gentile are under sin. None is better than the other. They are under the power, the control and condemnation of sin. They have all been shut up under hopelessness. That's the conclusion of the matter, hopelessness to all of mankind. Jew and Gentile have been affected by sin the same way. They have been corrupted from the head to the toe, the members of their flesh, the mouth, the lips, the throat, the hands, the feet, are willing participants in the generation and propagation of sin. There's no part of the body that is not involved in sinning. That's what Paul is teaching in the opening of Romans chapter 3. So if you think you didn't touch, God says, oh, you spoke it. If you say, I didn't speak it, God says, oh, you thought it. So every part of your body contributes something towards your condemnation if you are left to yourself. So it doesn't matter what sin you think you did not do, one member of your body has done enough sin to get you condemned. That's Paul's argument. So the conclusion of the human condition is this in Romans 3, 10 to 12. Romans 3, 10 to 12, Paul gives us the human condition. As it is written, there's none righteous. No, not one. 
Paul is writing to Christians who in our day some claim to be getting better. <laughs> Paul says, no, there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. As far as God is concerned. Now you go and ask people and say, are you unrighteous? They will not agree to that description. They will agree to having done some mistakes, some oops moments, which they are working through with some New Year's resolution, a little bit of yoga, yeah. <laughs> but on the whole, they are otherwise very good people. They are otherwise very decent, righteous people. God says, no, that's not true. There's none righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside and have become unprofitable. And as I said in the previous message, unprofitable, there is the rendering of a fruit that is rotten. What are you going to do with a fruit that is rotten? I'm going to use that to make a cake for Mother's Day. <laughs> no, it's unprofitable, it's useless. Now, that is a very shocking statement because people are engaged in all kinds of activities that we deem to be very good. We have the Red Cross. We have a lot of non-governmental organizations that do all kinds of charitable work here in the U.S., across the world. We have the soup kitchens and all that jazz. But God says, there's none who does good still. Why? Because all that men and women do is motivated by building their own resume before God. Building their own resume to present before God. Lord, Lord, did we not do wonderful things in your name? We, the religious ones will say we cast out demons in your name. Yeah? We prophesied in your name. And that list obviously is not exhaustive. Jesus could have gone another 500 pages of the things that people are going to come and claim to have done for him as basis of righteousness. And God knows the motivations of the heart. And I'm sure he alone knows what he's talking about. And in this state, men and women do not know the way of peace. They do not know the way to approach God. That's the point. They do not know how to approach the thrice holy God in peace. 
Everyone is going to approach God. But not many people know how to approach him in peace. And that's what the gospel is declaring to us. This is the way of peace. This is how you approach him in peace. Otherwise, fireworks. Yeah. They have not known the way of peace because they are ignorant of God's righteousness. Because it is only by his righteousness as has been revealed in the gospel that peace is made, has been made and is known. But all men and women are in prison. They are in jail. They are not free as they think or as they have been told. Not as far as God is concerned. We are not a free people of our own selves. We can't set ourselves free. A prisoner cannot do a jailbreak in the context of salvation. You can't. We are not a free people. Someone has to set us free. Someone has to set us free. So, what or why then the law? Why give the law to a people who are in prison? Why give the law to a guy who is in prison serving a life sentence? What benefit does he get from it? When he has no hope of ever being set free. Why give him the law? The law can't help him. It's too late for the law to help him. He's already on death row. Or serving a life sentence. Verse 19, let's hear. Why then the law? Now we know that whatever the law says. It says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Not before men, but before God. The law is given to stop every mouth. Stop every mouth from doing what? From making any claims of righteousness, any claims of goodness. How? By asking or demanding sinners to do something that they cannot do. <laughs> That's how the Lord does it. It demands things that you are not able to do. And then it condemns you for not doing the things that you are not able to do. Yes, God does command people to do things beyond their ability to do. I see a lot of false teaching out there that says, well, if God demands something, then the assumption is people have natural ability to do it. No, not, not the God of the Bible. We should not think that just because God issued a command for something to be done, 
it automatically means or implies that humans have natural ability to do the same thing. This, of course, rubs people the wrong way because they begin to see the implication. And they'll say, oh, that is unjust. That is not fair. And it is not fair because they don't know who they're dealing with. They do not know the God who has revealed himself, his holiness and his righteousness. Yeah? They are ignorant of that God. So God did not give the law to make people righteous by it, but to do the very opposite, to find them guilty and condemn them. In other words, the law was given to leave us in a very helpless situation as prisoners to sin and death. A condition that none was and is able to redeem themselves from. So this design was by God. It was neither random nor reactionary on the part of God. Because God had a bigger purpose with the law. God was working something in the matter of salvation. So the coming and giving of the law is just one part of the big puzzle of God's purpose in Christ. God had to make us guilty before him. And when you are guilty, where do you belong? I just read a story this morning. It's funny, sorry. <laughs> in Texas, a guy broke into someone's house and stole a lawnmower. And then he was caught mowing the yard of the victim, the person from whom they stole the lawnmower. And when the cops wanted to apprehend him, he ran away with the lawnmower. You can go look for it. <laughs> The guy is guilty. And the cops are looking for him because that's the law. Okay? Doesn't matter what, the fact that he was mowing the yard of the guy from whom he stole the mower is not going to help his situation. He's going to be charged. He's going to be charged for theft. Yeah? So when you steal, you belong to jail. When you sin, you belong to jail. And if you should come out of prison, how will that happen? You must make the payment to make satisfaction for your sin. Payment has to be made somehow. Someone has to pay. But is that something that a sinner can do by themselves? In other words, is a sinner able? Are they capable of producing righteousness by the very law that condemns them? Because if you have to produce righteousness, you have to go back to the law. 
The very law that condemns you is the law that you are supposed to use to produce righteousness. Oh, I wish people could understand this. No, if you are a prisoner, you cannot produce righteousness by the very law that condemns you. The law continues to demand the same standard of performance, of perfection. It never graduates from this function with respect to sinners. The law never graduates from this function. The law never lowers its standard. Never. Never. It always upholds it. So people will say, oh no, because of grace, now we can do the law. No, we can't do the law. <laughs> Our law keeping still remains in Christ. We can't do the law. Because the law still demands perfection. So by the law, God has effectively shut the mouths of all people he has removed all grounds of boasting. But the self-righteous, though condemned, will not stop thinking that they are righteous. Why? Because they are not hearing and listening to God's own arguments about the matter. Establishing your own righteousness is the heart or essence of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is just looking to yourself and saying, I don't think I'm that bad. <laughs> At least grandma told me. <laughs> self-righteousness is a refusal to submit to God's own righteousness that has been revealed through the gospel. So what's the conclusion in this respect? Verse 20 of Romans 3. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the deeds of the law, that is by the deeds of the flesh, in obedience to the law, will no man, no person, be justified in God's sight, will be declared as a holy and righteous person in his sight. Yes, people can be justified in their own eyes, they can feel righteous in their own eyes, and the eyes of others, but that's not how God measures or judges the matter. He says, no flesh will be justified in his sight. In other words, no person by anything that they have done in law-keeping or being a good person will make them a just or righteous person before God. Christ alone is excluded from that. Christ was justified by his own obedience to the law, because he gave the law every jot and tittle of the law he fulfilled. So he could be justified by the law as a righteous person. But the law did not make Jesus righteous. 
Jesus was already righteous because he is God. The law only proved that he was righteous. So this kind of teaching is an offense to those who think are trying and have dedicated their lives to being righteous in themselves. People are trying or give people something to do about salvation or they'll try or they'll try. (laughs) But this message they will not receive. But why do people think that they can be justified by works? Or by the works of their flesh. Because deep inside, everyone knows that they are sinners. Romans 1 and 2 have told us that. And naturally, we want to do things, hopefully, that will tip the scale. We know we have done a number of bad things. And we try to make up for the bad deeds. And hopefully if we can just do a little bit more and just tip like we have with the elections, if you can just make it above 50%, 50 point, then you've won. Fifty-something percent is not really winning an election, people. Because almost half of the people did not vote for you. (laughs) But that's how people think. We have a sliding scale of righteousness, whereas God has an unbendable scale. Okay. So much of religion is about tipping the scale with the weight of self-righteousness. And hopefully God will be pleased and get us in if our good deeds outweigh the bad. So by the fact that men and women are doing this, they understand that there's a justification issue. They understand that there's a justification issue Because they know they are sinners, but they just don't know or understand how it actually works. They don't understand God's own righteous way of doing it. That's why Paul in Romans 10 is going to tell us that the Jews had zeal for God, but not in line with the truth. They were not in line with the truth. Because they did not submit to the righteousness of God that is in the gospel. Rather, they went and established their own righteousness that is according to the flesh. Yeah? So because of ignorance, people wrongly use their obedience to the law to establish their own justification. And Paul says, no, The law as a general principle was given to give the knowledge of sin. That is what happened with Adam. The commandment to not eat is what gave Adam and Eve the knowledge of sin. Once they broke that commandment, 
they immediately discovered that they were naked. They were unrighteous. Because Adam and Eve were not righteous people in themselves. The commandment that was given them revealed it. Remember, the law is given to discover what is in man. Yes, Adam and Eve were created good and innocent. But what does it mean that they were created good? It doesn't mean they were created righteous as Jesus was righteous. They were good for what God created them to be. They were good for the purpose for which God made them. Adam was created innocent but fallible. And so when the commandment came, he sinned and died as God had said would happen. So the point is, there's no hope for men and women in law. It doesn't matter even for Adam, who was made in God's image, still had no hope apart from Christ. There's no hope for anyone who is from the dust. There's no hope for anyone who is from the dust. Because life and righteousness do not come from the work of the dust. Life and righteousness are attributes. They are properties, qualities that are only found in the ever-living God. They cannot be earned. Eternal life cannot be earned. Righteousness can not be end, can only be given, can only be stored, be stored and freely. So the law only compounds your problems. The more laws I give you today, the more you're going to feel condemned. If you want to try it, I'll give you 1,000 laws today that I'm going to write after this message. And by the end of the day, you have broken, you'd have broken like 99% of them. No hope for you in law. So there's absolutely nothing a person can do in and by themselves to be saved. And people who are not paying attention to the gospel arguments will immediately raise their hands and possibly toss to and say, that is not true, preacher. If we repent and believe, we'll be saved. Yes, it's true. That if one repents and believes, they'll be saved. But that is not the whole story. It is purposefully ignoring a lot of gospel truth 
to come to that position as if faith and repentance are things that men and women are able to do naturally. Faith and repentance are not things that people do of their own power to be saved. You cannot do anything to be saved. There's nothing that you can do to be saved. Only Christ did something for you to be saved. You can't do anything to be saved. Because Paul has just told you, by the deeds of the flesh, no man shall be saved. Faith and repentance are caused by God. They are gifts of God worked in the redeemed by the Holy Spirit. They are not natural to us. They are not natural to those whose mouths have been stopped and found guilty. They are not natural to the Romans one citizens. So how do we get from that? How do we get from that state that Paul has described to be called the children of God? How do we come out of Romans one country to be called the saints of God? Righteous people. How do we get from that and lay claim to eternal life? To God's inheritance? False religion will come and it will come with a lot of Bible verses and say this is what you ought to do. Once they say that, you know they lie. This is what you ought to do. You usually want to come and join our church. That's going to be the first step. Okay? Tick. You need to get baptized. Number two, or rebaptized or rededicate your life to Jesus if you have been backsliding in the past few years. And then get back on your tithing schedule. Okay? You need to make a commitment to Jesus. You need to have a one-on-one with our pastor. You need to make a covenant with us. And then you shall be in good standing. That's how they've answered it. That's how it's been preached this morning. But that's not God's formula of dealing with the issue. That's not God's way of doing it. Now, let us hear God's way. Verse 21. Verse 21 of Romans 3. If I haven't preached for more than a week, I come with a triple dose. I can be talking the whole day, trust me. Hear God's way. Verse 21. But now, (laughs) the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. 
But now, you have to underline that. But now, that is speaking to a transition of the arguments, a change of things, an introduction to a different idea with a proposal that has the solution to all the problems that have been discussed this far. But now. But now. Thank God for but now. But now what? The righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. And that to say, true biblical Christianity is a revealed religion from God. You can't go to seminary for this. You can't work, study your way into this. It's revealed by God. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. So the conundrum of the human condition has been solved and is solved by this thing called the righteousness of God. And this is an idea that Paul had introduced to us in Romans 1, 16 and 17. If you want, you can go there with me, but I'll read it in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, for in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. They just shall live by faith. And in reading our text in Romans 3, you're going to see that Paul, almost every other line is talking about the righteousness of God, the righteousness, and this is his subject. And fundamentally, even though the book of Romans has some other topics, subtopics, it is about the righteousness of God revealed. That's the subject. Fundamentally. And Paul now seeks to expand on that subject of God's righteousness and says, it is God's righteousness. Not the righteousness of Moses. Not the righteousness of the obedience of man as found in Adam. It is righteousness that is from faith to faith, which means it is a righteousness that is possessed continually by faith. You don't ever graduate from this righteousness. Is from faith to faith. You don't graduate from faith 
to faith plus works. It remains the same. Because that righteousness is unchangeable. And Paul says this righteousness is revealed and that means it is unknown naturally by the minds of men and women. As I said, you cannot meditate or Kabbalah yourself into this kind of righteousness. God must bring one to its understanding and its possession. God must initiate the bringing of that righteousness and the possession of it. Faith alone is what evidences that you possess this righteousness. You possess this righteousness even as you are sitting down doing anything. You see, works you have to get to work. You have to put some grease to the elbows and get to work. But this righteousness can be possessed and is possessed even in your sleep. Doing nothing. Lazy boy theology. We love it. <laughs> this righteousness is witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets, that is the whole writing of the Old Testament, bears testimony of this righteousness. And that is why, I, as I said before, that if we are not preaching this righteousness from the Old Testament, then we have not understood the Bible. The law and the prophets testify of the righteousness of God. But what is it? Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe for there's no difference. And I'm reading that from the New King James and I don't think the New King James did a faithful work in their translation because in this particular verse it leads to a false conclusion of this righteousness as though it is caused or is activated or is given in response to human faith. Yes, faith is connected to this righteousness, but not as cause, but as the evidence of things hoped for, the evidence of things or the substance of things not seen. Paul here is talking about the cause of this righteousness, about the merit of this righteousness, and what it is. And the original King James and the New English translation are more faithful in this translation. Here what the KJV says in Romans 21 to 22 of Romans 3. Verse 21 to 22 of Romans 3. Paul says, But now, the righteousness of God without the law 
is manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. By faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there's no difference. So there's two faithing there. There's the faith of Christ, and then there's the faith of those who are being redeemed. One causes the other. Here the new English translation on the same verses, it says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God, although it is attested by the law and the prophets, has been disclosed, namely the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. For all who believe the faithfulness of Jesus Christ is for all those who believe called saints who are beloved and have been called of God. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what we need to make a distinction of here is Believing is a fruit of possessing this righteousness. It is not the cause of it. This righteousness of God by which a sinner is justified or declared to be righteous by God, Paul says, is apart from the law. It is without the law as the KJV renders it. And that is a remarkable statement because this is a righteousness that has nothing to do with what you and I have done or will ever do. It has nothing to do Absolutely nothing to do with what the sinner does or has done or did not do or will not do with the law. Because this righteousness cannot be caused by law doing. It cannot be caused by anything that you do. Even if you were innocent, you could not cause this righteousness. If you have a righteousness that is caused by the law is accompanied by the law, then you are still under sin. You are still under sin. You are not sin. If you have a righteousness that requires Moses for his keeping, for his doing, then you are still under sin. We cannot possess this righteousness that is without the law and then go and sleep soundly in the warm embrace of Moses. You cannot possess Christ who is the cause of this righteousness and then go get Cheerios from Moses. 
You can't. You can't. You can't. I don't care, people, with all your reformed confessions, your Westminster confession of faith and stuff like that. They did not get this. They did not understand this. Christ alone is the bringer of this righteousness. And you can't mix this righteousness with the righteousness of the law. You cannot mix them. The moment that you mix them, you have a false gospel. Now, my dear friends, <laughs> Paul says this righteousness has been attested, has been witnessed by the law and the prophets. That is what Moses witnesses. Moses testifies of the righteousness. He does not cause it. So how does Moses witness of this righteousness? Let's go to John 5. John 5, 44-47. John 5, 44-47. John says, The Lord said to the Jews, How can you believe who will receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses. Why? In whom you trust. People trust Moses. People trust their law-keeping. That's what Jesus is saying. Verse 46. For if you believed Moses, if you actually believed what Moses was saying, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? <laughs> Moses, the law, wrote about Jesus. Moses wrote about the righteousness of God, who is Christ. The righteousness of God is the person of Jesus. Revealed. Christ is the righteousness of God that has been revealed now by the gospel. So when we go to read the writings of Moses and the law, we should find Christ, even the very Ten Commandments, the witness of Christ. The Ten Commandments, they bear witness of Jesus if we understand them correctly. They are not for you and I to try and do to be made righteous before God. Hear this again from, let's go back to Romans 3, verse 21 and 22. I'm going to be reading from my NET again. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, although it is attested by the law and the prophets, has been disclosed. Namely, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying our gospel must be apart from the law. You have to make the distinction. It has to be apart. 
And yet much of what is called gospel and righteousness always has Moses added. You hear Christ plus Moses. It is Christ plus keeping of the Ten Commandments. And then they have this trick to say, oh, the law is eternal. Yeah? It's a very important trick that they use to try and bind you back to Moses. Yes, it feels righteous. It feels righteous to ignorant people. But that is not God's gospel. God's gospel is apart from the law. Did you hear that? It is apart from the law. Righteousness apart from the law. How do you have righteousness apart from the law? Because it is righteousness that is done by another. The law by its nature demands that you perform. That's what the law demands. So if your righteousness is from Christ, then it is righteousness that is apart from the law. And that is a very offensive statement because that equation totally excludes all human works. Yeah? As I said, sinners naturally want to approach God through their works. That's how we were raised on a reward system of good behavior. Take the trash out and then you get more gummy bears. <laughs> God says no gummy bears for Okay? Still take the trash out. So how does this righteousness come again? Verse 22. Namely, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This righteousness of God is through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The faith of Jesus is the faithfulness of Christ. But what does that mean? What was Jesus believing? Was Jesus believing the same way that we are commanded to believe? No, this was not about Jesus believing, but about Jesus doing. And what did Jesus do? What was he faithful to? And to who? Or to whom? Jesus was faithful to the Father. He was faithful to all that they agreed to be done for the salvation of his people. He was faithful to fulfill every term, every condition of your salvation. As they agreed as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the faithfulness of Christ was in fulfillment of all the terms of salvation as they were stipulated by the Father. So Jesus did not just get a long ladder at Home Depot and came down to earth. He did not come down for vacation in Palestine either. That's too much of a desert. 
He was a man on a mission. He was a man who was under an oath. He was under a covenant. He was under a contract that he had to perform. And he was faithful to the contract that he had with the father. As he stood as the surety and substitute for his people. And in that contract, the Christ had to die to make propitiation, which means to make satisfaction for the sins of his people, to stand and honor all righteousness in faithful obedience to those terms. Remember, they are terms of salvation. Only Jesus was bound to do those terms, not you. Only Christ was bound. And he was faithful to the fulfillment of all those things, even to the point of death on the cross. So much that when he had finished, he said, Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. Now glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world because I finished He's the only one who ever finished anything whatsoever. For every one of us, we have to come back on Monday and try to finish off what he did not finish off on Friday. Yeah? We always have dishes that are yet to be washed this very day. (laughs) Or I'm going to run the dishwasher maybe tonight or tomorrow. Always unfinished business. Go to the laundry room. There's a lot of laundry that is unfinished. We do not finish anything. Christ Jesus, he finished. That's his faithfulness. I finished the work. So naturally on the cross, Jesus' final words were, it is finished. Okay, it is finished. So the righteousness of God has been revealed and accomplished in the person of Christ. So why would God bring this righteousness that is apart from the law? Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it doesn't matter what, whether one agrees with it or not, God says all have sinned. All have fallen short of the mark. Also, just to agree that one has sinned does not necessarily mean that they believe the gospel in which God's righteousness is revealed. Because people say, aren't we all sinners? I have a workmate. I always address her as a sinner. I say, hi, sinner. How was the weekend? (laughs) Then she says, aren't we all sinners? It's like, yeah, we all sinners, but you are Roman Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we are all sinners. But tell me how we escape from that. The law cannot help anyone because all have fallen short of the glory of God. And that means 
the standard of Christ Jesus, because Christ is the glory of God. Ultimately, he is the standard. Your law obedience will always fall short. How short? How long? Like very long, like very short. So progressive sanctification, where you and God help each other, especially help you, to meet the standard to some degree in this life and hopefully finish it when you die, you cannot produce this righteousness in hospice care or under hospice care. It's not going to happen. Okay? You always fall short. If you can progress to 85% righteousness, what is stopping you from getting to 98%? To 99.9% and then eventually to 100%? Under this scheme, it is possible to get to 100%. If one is given enough years to live, if one is just diligent enough to want to obey. But the text is teaching us that the righteousness of God is unreachable no matter how many years you have been given to live. There are no vitamin supplements or vaccine good enough that you and I can take that will help you to live long enough to reach this righteousness. So if all have fallen short, this is what we are doing here. Before I proceed, Romans is just too important a book to be understood. It has a lot of detail. It has a lot of things that need to be defined. Because I argue and say, if the church world understood God's arguments in the book of Romans, it wouldn't be so hard to find a church. But the book of Romans is very fundamental to our understanding of God's thinking about the matter of salvation. We need to understand the terms. We need to understand how the things come together. Because at some point, we want to go back. We want to listen to all these many words. There are a lot of words, but they are not wasted words. Every line is very critical to your development and understanding of what this gospel is all about. Because when you start talking to people, they start going on tangents and asking this and saying this and that. So you have to be settled in your understanding. So, God says, all have fallen short of his glory. Now, if all have fallen short of God's standard and have been found helpless or helplessly guilty, and cannot be justified by the works of the law or the deeds of the flesh, what then? How then? But ultimately, that's the question. How then are you going to stand before a holy and righteous God and be acquitted and not go to hell or to destruction? How then do you approach him? That's the issue. I think as long as you have been born, that's the only problem you have to answer for yourself. How do you approach him? Paul says, verse 24, 
being justified freely. <laughs> this is why every post of mine on Facebook ends with, and it is free. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The hopeless sinner is justified, is declared to be righteous freely by his grace. They are declared to be righteous freely and that means without cause. That's what the Greek word means. Let's hear how Jesus or John used it in John 15. Let's go to John 15, 24 to 25. John 15, 24 to 25. The Lord said, verse 24, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have sinned and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. So without a cause is the translation of the Greek word Dorian, D-O-R-E-A-N. You could almost name your daughter that, Dorian. Just finding some nice name, Dorian. No, Dorian, Dorian. And it means without a cause, freely, without paying, or without reason, or undeservedly, without paying, without reason. That's what freely means. So Jesus was hated without a cause. Because he was not a sinner. There was no reason to hate Jesus. Because he did not do any wrong to anybody. So anyone who hated him had no good grounds to do so. And God says, the sinner has been freely declared as righteous before God without a good cause found in them. There's no good cause. There's no good cause found in me. No good cause found in you. In other words, there's no merit or goodness found in any of those that God has declared as righteous. Especially if you're coming from Romans 1 country. There's absolutely nothing that a sinner has done or do that forms the basis of them being declared as righteous before God. This is the matter that a lot of professing Christians do not understand, they do not get, or they outright downplay it. Because they think God is bluffing. They say, oh, but you, then they want to go to the book of James. The book of James is always their hiding book. They always go and run there. To try and hold on to some stupid thing that they're doing. The book of James is a gospel book too. If you actually know how to interpret it. Okay. But people shall know that God is not playing games. When he says depart from me. You lawless ones. 
I never knew you. Yeah? So the sinner is declared as righteous freely. Freely implies that it is a gift. And just as a true gift is freely given by definition, a gift cannot be earned. You can't buy yourself a gift. It's not a gift. If you contribute something, whatever amount to something that you're going to gift yourself, <laughs> then that ceases to be a gift. Something that you work for is a payment to your own labor. It is a paycheck. It is a reward for something that you did. A paycheck is never a gift. But that which is owed you by the company or the firm for the labor that you gave them. Yeah? So faith is a gift. Repentance is a gift. All of salvation is a gift from God. It is given freely without a cause. Let's keep working some implications. And that which is given without cause from you cannot be lost because you did nothing to earn it. The giving of that gift was not conditional on you keeping it. The gift is not given as an offer. Salvation is imposed on all who should receive it. God imposes it. I know impose is a bad word for those who like to condition salvation, but it, it is a very appropriate word. God imposes salvation on us. Salvation is not a gift that you and I are able to keep. We cannot keep salvation. <laughs> the Bible says we are kept in this salvation by God. Jesus said, of all that the Father gave to me, I will lose not one. He will keep them. He will give them, has given them eternal life. And the Father also keeps them. And no one is strong enough, big enough to snatch them from the hands of Christ or from the hands of the Father, which means who keeps you is God himself. Because if you're going to be snatched, you're not being snatched from your house. You're being snatched from God's own hands. And Jesus says, no, it's not going to happen. So Christ is the one who keeps you. Yeah? And you know by our tradition, we go verse by verse. And you know how far we are by the number of verses that we have not spoken to. So I think we have three more verses and we are done. The sinner is said to be justified freely by his grace. God's grace. God's grace is unmerited favor and that is in keeping with the matter of a gift. A gift cannot be merited and so grace cannot be merited either 
But that does not mean that this gift is given all those who run to John 3.16. Yeah? They claim, oh, John 3.16, Jesus said, God so, <laughs> so loved the world. Oh, he so loved the world. He put the names on his refrigerator in heaven. No. To read that into John 3.16 is a denial of the clearer teaching of God's words even by Jesus himself in this very same book of John. Jesus teaches election in the very book of John. And we know this from our experience that there are no parents that buy gifts for their children and also for the whole neighborhood. Okay? <laughs> parents buy gifts for the children. And if here, on Mother's Day even, if you bought a gift for your mom, you're not buying gifts for all the mothers in the whole world. No. <laughs> you buy a special gift for your own mom. And that's particular redemption God is teaching these wonderful truths even in our day to day. Okay? The unmerited favor is only towards the ones that Paul says are beloved in Rome, called of God, the beloved of Christ of all time. Yeah? And that is say grace is particular. So what is the basis of this gift? Let's keep working. Being justified freely by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the justification though freely given with respect to the sinner, was by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that introduces us to the word redemption. This is an introduction to this part or section of Romans, and it is very, very critical. I'm going to have to cycle through it again in the next message, but we have to go through it today. Redemption is a very important word that Paul introduces to us. It means a buying back from or a setting free by way of payment of a price. A setting free by way of payment of a price. So the sinner was bought, was purchased, was set free, was redeemed by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But what does the redemption imply? The redemption implies that the people so redeemed were in captivity. And number two, that they had no ability to set themselves free. They could not buy back their own freedom from sin and death. So Christ became their redemption prize. He became the prize for their freedom. Christ became the prize of the freedom. How? Verse 25. <clears throat> Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his own blood. God set forth Christ as the propitiation by his blood. So there again another big word, propitiation. 
Christ Jesus, the propitiation, publicly displayed or exposed to view for the work of propitiation. To propitiate means to appease, to appease the anger or the wrath of someone. Christ Jesus appeased or propitiated and removed the wrath of God by his death, by his blood on the cross. That blood is what removed the wrath of God. This is just so important to understand the words because the Holy Spirit mean or means for us to understand what these words mean because they convey God's truth as he would have us to understand him and believe the truth. This is the basis of faith. When you understand these things, a lot of professing Christians, they, have, they lack assurance. If you talk to people who call themselves Christians, what you're going to find in the majority of cases is a lack of assurance of salvation. And the reason is that they are not being taught what the Bible actually says what the gospel is. That's the problem. That's the issue. They're not being taught. You can't teach these things in 25 minutes. You can't. There's a lot of stuff to chew and digest. Okay? So this is what Christ accomplished by his death. He propitiated the wrath of God. He satisfied his wrath by making the appropriate payment of his blood. What does that tell us? It is telling us that the shedding of Christ's blood is what God required was the condition for the setting aside and complete removal of his wrath. There was no bypassing this. God's love could not bypass this. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Without shedding of blood, there's no cancellation of sin. The blood of Christ had to be shed for there to be cancellation of sin. Okay? So Christ was displayed at his death as the mercy seat. The New English translation, like I said, we're going to have to go back to this because it's so important. I'm introducing you to the ideas. The New English translation says this in verse 25. God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat, accessible through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. So Christ was displayed at his death as the mercy seat. Your King James or New King James will say as propitiation. The NET and other translations will say the mercy seat. And the Greek word translated there is hilasterion. And that speaks 
to the covering that was on the ark of the covenant on which the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the day of atonement. We're going to go at length in our next teaching. And Paul says by the Holy Spirit, Christ's blood is that blood that has been put on the mercy seat. And the merits of his blood covers the condemnation, the testimony that was carried by the Ark of the Covenant. Because remember, in the Ark of the Covenant, yes, there were three things there. The manna, the rod of Aaron, and also the two tablets of stone. The two tablets of stone representing the law represented the condemnation. So if you would come and touch the Ark of the Covenant, what killed you was not the rod of Aaron. What killed you was not the manna. What killed you was the law testimony that was there. That's what needed to be covered by the blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat. And Paul says, the blood of Christ is the mercy seat. It is the propitiation that allows you to touch the ark of God without getting electrocuted as happened with Uzzah when he tried to steady the ark. Okay? So the blood of Christ forms the righteousness and it is apart from the works. Okay? So Paul says again, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. In Christ, God was demonstrating his righteousness. And through faith, God demonstrates not our own righteousness, but his righteousness. So which means proper faith looks to his righteousness. It brings the testimony of his righteousness. Proper faith does not talk about you and your righteousness. It talks about his righteousness. Let's define faith again some more. This is important. True faith speaks to and beholds the righteousness of another. And Paul says God had been forbearing with the children of men, not bringing his judgment on them, not bringing his judgment immediately because of their sin. And he did this by passing over the sins that were previously committed And that does not mean any could be saved apart from a proper payment. No, he passed them over only in the matter of delaying the judgment of them because God was unfolding his whole purpose and solution for their sins in the appearing of Christ. God always had his eyes on Christ as the only solution. Because God does not just forgive sin. God does not forgive sin. Period. And this will drive people crazy. Like, no, God does not forgive sin. Sin has to be paid. So, that's why Christ came. Christ paid 
by his blood. And our sins are freely forgiven. Not by just saying, oh, come here, Katie, I'm going to give you a hug. They are freely paid and forgiven because someone already paid. People who go to hell will go to hell because their sins were not paid. And Paul is going to develop that and explain to us that understanding of how God purposed to do the matter of salvation. Okay? So God cannot forgive sin without payment. That's the point that I'm trying to get you to understand. But why was God long-suffering? I think I have five more minutes. Why was God long-suffering? To demonstrate at the present time, verse 26, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God was long-suffering towards sinners and not sending them to hell because he had the way of dealing with the issue that he was to reveal in and by the person of Christ. So at this present time, in the time of the appearance of Christ, in the time of the death of Christ, God was demonstrating his righteousness, demonstrating his righteousness in the person of Christ, in that sin must be paid for, and it must be paid for through the God-approved way God approved high priest and sacrifice. It must be paid for by way of death. His justice must be met. And as I said, God could not just pass over our sin by just winking his eyes. But that would be contrary to his holiness and righteousness. So the righteousness that God has demonstrated in this present time is by way of the forgiveness of sins through the work of a substitute. God's way of salvation honors both his justice and his love. Yeah? So, now Paul draws another necessary or implied conclusion especially for the Jew who rested and boasted in the law in verse 26 and that's verse 27, sorry. And that's our last verse. He says, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law or by what principle? Paul asks and says, is it by the principle of works? And he answers and says, no, but by the law of faith. So all this is working towards something here, the matter of boasting. There's a way that excludes all manner of boasting. And what is that principle? What is that way? Because the law cannot exclude boasting because it requires you to do it. So if you contribute anything, towards your salvation, by anything that you do. You have room, you have grounds to boast, even if it's 1%. You have room for boasting. You had something to kick in. And if you contributed anything, whatever it is, people, please, you're going to boast. 
and God will not take any boasting. So his way excludes all manner of boasting. And what is that way? It is by the principle of faith. And in what way does faith exclude boasting? I have this underlined in my notes. Because faith is an acknowledgement that one is righteous only by the righteousness of another. Faith contributes nothing to salvation because faith itself, as we said, is a gift of God. So, in conclusion, this is the thinking around this matter. God has purposefully shut up all men and women under sin. It is plan. It was not by accident. Sin was never an accident. People try to explain things away to protect God. There's no need to protect God. He has shut up all men and women to make them guilty so that none would open their mouth and start chirping about how good they are before him. And God used the principle of the law to that effect. Which law demands impossible performance from sinners? And in that state of helplessness, God then comes and says, this is the purpose of the law. Don't think there's any righteousness to come from what you do yourself or trying to obey what the law says. A righteousness has been revealed. A but now moment has happened. A righteousness has been revealed in this gospel. A righteousness by the person of Christ. A righteousness that is apart from the law. A righteousness that has been witnessed by the law and the prophets. A righteousness which is freely given. Given without cause in you. A righteousness that is by God's grace. A righteousness that is through the redemption that is in Christ. A righteousness which is through faith. A righteousness that excludes all manner of boasting. And a righteousness that is free. Amen. We're done. Okay? Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you for all things in Christ. We thank you for these many words that you've given us. We pray, Lord, that you spoke to your people and they had what they needed to hear. And I pray that you continue to grow them and mature them in the understanding of this righteousness of God that has been revealed in the scriptures. We thank you, we honor you for giving us opportunity to come and sit around the word of God. We pray that you keep us now going in and out. We remember all those of the saints who are dealing with all kinds of issues in their life. We just ask for your grace to be upon them. We honor you, we glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.